New Year's. Isn't it weird that with the new year comes this weird natural compulsion to make promises to be better in the next? You know, New Year's resolutions. The new year comes around, and we just have this inner clock that says, I can be better. I can do better. I can let go of this. I can let go of that. I can tackle this. I can tackle that. Every New Year's, we make these promises to ourselves. It's been said, an optimist stays up until midnight to see the new year in, while a pessimist stays up to make sure the old one leaves. Isn't that the truth? Historically speaking, this phenomenon of sensing within the new year the desire to make promises to be better, this has existed for millennia. The ancient Babylonians would begin each new year by making promises to their gods that they would return, borrow objects, and pay down their debt. The Romans would make similar promises to the god Janus. This is the god in whom we get the, uh, the month January. In medieval times, the knights after Christmas took what was known as the peacock vow in which they reaffirmed their commitment to chivalry. As early as 1740, the founder of the Methodist church, John Wesley, created the watch night service or what others have called covenant renewal services. What was billed as a godly alternative to a typical night of drunken revelry, these services gave Christians an opportunity to review the year before, the year that had passed, while preparing for the new year, the year coming, by praying, making confession, and resolving to do better. It's where we get the idea of a new year's resolution. Sadly, the whole notion of a new year's resolution is destined for failure. I hate to break that to you. Your New Year's resolution is destined for failure, mainly because it's completely based in the failures of the previous year. I mean, isn't that the truth? You know, the top resolutions at New Year's, the first one being weight loss. You know why that's your resolution going into the next year? Because you finished the previous year fat and you couldn't do anything about it. So you're like, this year will be different. No, it won't. Exercise. It's another one that people uh, commit to going into the new year. But you know why you commit to that going into the new year? That elliptical machine in your room has sat unoccupied the whole previous year. And you're like, this year, it'll be different to stop smoking. No one resolves to stop smoking in the next year if they haven't struggled stopping in the previous. Better money management, debt reduction, all New Year's resolutions are destined for failure because they're based in failure. In 2007, a study was conducted by British psychologist Richard Wiseman that involved 3,000 people. The study showed that 88% of those who set New Year's resolutions fail. That means the success rate's only 12%. That's crazy. In fact, the study showed that 52% of all of the participants who failed were confident at the beginning that they would succeed. Ironically, most people fail to live up to their New Year's resolution within just 30 days, which means by February, you're once again a failure. Some have correctly pointed out that a New Year's resolution is something that goes in one year and out the other. 
Isn't that the truth? And if this is you, don't worry. I mean, you're not alone. This is how it is with everyone. So the initial question this morning, and I think it's relevant for the time, what is it that makes a resolution so hard to keep? I mean, why do we always fail at keeping New Year's resolutions? While it's easy to point to these failures as a lack of willpower or discipline, the reality is that for most people, this isn't the case. You don't fail at your New Year's resolution because you lack willpower, and you don't fail because you lack discipline. Author Jonah Lair believes that the problem with why you fail at your New Year's resolution might actually reside in the brain. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, Lair explains that since the part of the brain responsible for willpower, which is the prefrontal cortex, is the same area in charge of keeping a person focused, handling short-term memory, memory, solving abstract problems, adding a New Year's resolution to an already overloaded prefrontal cortex, he claims is a surefire way to fail. He points to Bab Shiv, who's a professor at Stanford, and this woman ran a fascinating experiment. She took several dozen undergraduates and she divided them into two groups. One group was given a two-digit number to remember. The other group was given a seven-digit number to remember. They were told, they had a few minutes to recite, to memorize the number. Then they were told to go down the hallway to a second room and recite the number. They claimed that the experiment was to test memory. So one group has two digits, the other group has seven. Now what the researchers failed to tell each student was that in the hallway that separated the two rooms, they would be presented with two different snack options. On one end, there would be a slice of delicious but fattening chocolate cake. The other option, was a bowl of healthy fruit salad. You might speculate at this point that the experiment was not really memory, but something else. You see, in a fascinating and bizarre twist, as each of these students worked their way from one room to the next, presented with these two different snack options, the students with the seven digits rattling around in their brain, seven digits that they're stressed out trying to keep memorized, were twice as likely to choose unhealthy cake as opposed to the students who only had two digits to remember. I mean, two digits is way more simplistic than seven. Now, the reason the group with seven digits rattling around in their brain went for the cake, while the group with just two digits chose the healthier bowl of fruit, according to Professor Siv, was that those extra numbers took up valuable space in the brain producing what she calls a cognitive load, which made it much harder to exert willpower to resist a decadent dessert. In other words, all it takes is five extra bits of information to overtax the prefrontal cortex of your brain to the point where you'll lose the willpower to give in to temptation. Lear concludes his article by writing a tired brain preoccupied with its problems, is going to struggle to resist what it wants, even when what it wants isn't what we need. Interesting, Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. 
So if our failure to make good on our New Year's resolution is not a lack of willpower or even discipline, maybe it would be a lack of perseverance. You know, that tenacity, that persistence, endurance. Well, in an attempt to tackle this very topic, Dr. Mauricio Delgado, an associate professor of psychology at Rutgers, ran a different experiment where volunteers, who, by the way, were placed into a functioning MRI machine, so it's doing a live scan of the brain as this is all taking place. So they're in the MRI machine, their brain is being scanned, and they're asked to play a game, a very specific game. For this game, as they're playing it, would present varying setbacks, which would force the person playing to make a decision. Do I persist in the face of an obstacle or do I give up? Now here was the catch. Each setback in the game was presented in a way that emphasized either a controllable setback or an uncontrollable setback. What she discovered is that when people perceive themselves as having control over the setback they encounter, a particular part of the brain, the one, interestingly enough, that's linked to learning via trial and error, engages. And that person ends up being more likely to choose to persist towards their goal. However, when people feel like they have no control over their setback, an entirely different part of the brain lights up. The one that doesn't deal with learning, but instead the one that processes feelings. And when this engages, that person in an emotional state, more often than not, chooses to give up on their goals. Let me give you an example to kind of illustrate how this works. Apparently, if a student is struggling in a class, but they perceive that this struggle is the result of things they can control. Okay, I'm, I failed that test, but I know why I failed that test. I was procrastinating. I had poor study habits, things that I can control. When the student believes that their failure is a result of something they can remedy, they can fix, they're more inclined to continue in their studies. However, if a student perceives that their failing grade or their struggle is the result of something they can't control, like a poor teacher or unfair test questions, something they can't change, they are more inclined to quit and drop out of the class. Now, what does this all mean? What this means is that our resolve to persist in the face of obstacles, or for our purposes, the struggle we face in making good on our resolutions, your struggle is not based on a lack of willpower or discipline, but is rather based in a certain level of perceived control over negative circumstances. I wanna balance the books but I can't, the bank keeps hammering me with high interest rates. I, I, I wanna get a better job, move up the ladder, but I've got this guy in front of me, it's keeping me down. How you perceive whatever's in your way, whether you can control it or not control it, depends on whether you quit or persist. Now this morning, we're gonna discuss the implications that this has concerning our Christian experience. That's our purpose this morning. That will be our focus. But we'll also see how this whole idea plays out with Paul and Barnabas. 
See, where we are in the book of Acts is they're beginning the last leg of their first missionary journey. And we're going to see how the, their persistence, their, their determination to resolve plays out in a profound way against incredible, insurmountable odds. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Acts, so very quickly, let me just give you a, a quick recap, a running head start before we get to verse 19. Paul and Barnabas, they've made their way to Lystra. When they arrive in Lystra, there's no synagogue, so they begin to teach in the outdoor common areas. As Paul's having a discussion concerning Jesus and the gospel and grace, there's a man, a certain man, a lame man, who's eavesdropping in on the conversation. At some point, Paul notices this man that he has faith to be healed, not just his legs, but his heart. Salvation. Something about the man gripped Paul. And so in a stroke of, of boldness, he tells the man to rise up and walk, and he's healed. And as a result of this miracle, those in Lystra, these Hellenistic Gentiles, these Greeks, they begin to conclude that the gods have come to visit, that this work, this miracle could only have been done by a work of God. Now, they conclude that instead of looking to the living God, they determine that, well, Barnabas must be Zeus and Paul Hermes because he talks a lot and that makes him the chief speaker. So they're so convinced that Paul and Barnabas are gods that they come out to sacrifice oxen, laying garland. They're gonna worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. Well, Paul rushes in, he tears his clothes, he pleads with him not to do such a blasphemous thing. You can look back at the sermon that he gives as he begins to answer, provide a different direction, as he moves beyond himself and points to Jesus. Yes, you're right. What you just saw was a work of God, but not a work of, my, of me, not a work of man. I'm not a God, but let me tell you about Jesus. And as a result of all of this, you know, we're told that he could scarcely restrain the multitude. Well, verse 19, we're told that Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there to Lystra. And they persuaded the multitudes and stoned Paul, dragging him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, Paul rose up and went back into the city. Now, as we've noted in both of the cities mentioned here, Antioch and Iconium, Paul and Barnabas, while leaving behind churches, while engaging in ministry, while teaching the people, were forced to leave because of a growing threat from this group of unbelieving Jews, Jews that rejected the message, that resisted Paul and Barnabas. Now it's clear that forcing them out of their towns wasn't enough. Luke is clear that these unbelieving Jews come to Lystra, persuade the multitudes, stone Paul, drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, first question we should consider is, is what in the world was it about Paul that produced such a visceral hatred? I mean, this dude was not liked. I mean, I mean in our travels in Acts, that's pretty clear, right? He persecutes the church. Jesus intercedes. He's in Damascus teaching the people. Not a revival. They want to kill him. He has to escape Damascus. They let him down in a basket under the cover of darkness. He goes to Jerusalem to teach. 
What happens there? They want to kill him. Everywhere Paul goes, God works, but people want to kill him. Like, what was it now in these situations that caused such a hatred that they would travel 60 to 100 miles outside of their own, they, they run Paul out of town, he's in a different town. What is it about Paul that they would now track him down to stone him? Well, the answer is clear. Paul's departure hadn't done what they thought it would. Paul might have left, but the work of the gospel had not slowed in Antioch or Iconium. Paul might not have been there, but the word of God had been planted. Seeds had been sown. And while Paul was not present, nor Barnabas, there was a church that was growing. See, they thought they could persecute the man, run the man out of town. But Paul was just a messenger. And the message had already been delivered. A pandemic had already been started. Paul might not have been there. But the effects of his ministry were still being felt, which is why they conclude we've got to stop this man before he destroys everything. Now, on a side note, you can't help but also note just the fickleness of the mob. One day earlier, Paul is what? He is a god. The next day, what are they doing? Throwing rocks at him. They're trying to stone him. Please understand, when people think you're one thing, only to discover you're not, a good stoning will inevitably happen. Hero worship turns sour the moment a man is shown to be human. You see this in the church all the time. God uses a man to do a great work, and instead of that man pointing the people to Jesus, the real man doing the work, as he begins to take the glory to himself, at some point, he will be shown to be a man because there's no one that's perfect. I hope at Calvary 316 that the glory will always be deferred to Jesus. If you're looking at me as something special, A, get to know me, then you'll figure that out. Nothing special here. I'm a sinner, saved by grace, the same as you. And it's Jesus that we follow, not me. Now, let's get back to the scene because this is kind of a trippy thing that happens and it is the subject of much debate. But there are two things clear about our passage from the text. Two things we know. And so we should start there before we start speculating to what we don't. First, Paul is stoned. They throw rocks at him. They beat him down. Someone comes from behind with a larger stone when he's in an indefensible position and crushes his head. This is what happens. He is stoned, we're told that. And he's dragged out of the city because the people doing the stoning are convinced that he's dead. So that's the first thing we know for sure. The second thing we know for sure is that when the disciples gather around this limp and lifeless Paul, something crazy happens. He staggers to his feet, he rises up, and he walks back into the city. Now, the obvious question, Though the mob thought Paul was dead when they dumped his body outside of the city, was he still alive? They were just mistaken. They thought he was dead. Maybe he was knocked out. He was unconscious. They made a mistake. They dropped him, dumped him outside of the city. And Paul kind of comes to. 
goes back in, or was he indeed dead and he was resurrected to life in this moment? Now, it should be mentioned that it seems unlikely that Paul would have survived a stoning. As a matter of fact, that would have been a recorded first. This was the execution method. They didn't often make mistakes in killing someone. And this word supposing, as some have pointed to try to add some skepticism into whether or not they thought he was dead or not supposing, it doesn't mean what we often think. In the Greek, it literally means the presumption of certainty. The people doing the stoning believed they were certain when they dumped his body outside of the city that he was dead, that the deed had been done. But on the flip side, I do think it's fair to say that no one really knows for sure if Paul died or if he was resurrected. Like for starters, as a historian, our author Luke, he's kind of measured, isn't he? Like he's a bit cautious in how he presents the story. Luke, as a doctor, sticks to the facts. He sticks to what he knows and he doesn't give us a solid, clear-cut explanation. He says he was stoned, but he doesn't tell us he was dead. He just leaves it out there. Beyond this, there seems to be some evidence that Paul himself wasn't actually sure what happened in this moment, that, that Paul didn't know if he died or, or, or not. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 6, and we'll put this on the screen, Paul wrote of an occurrence that many believe happened here in Lystra. He says, I know a man in Christ, he's speaking of himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know. Whether out of the body, I don't know. Only God knows. This man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man. (laughs) Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he seems to be. So Paul's talking about an instance where he's not sure if he's dead or alive, but he goes to heaven. So he's caught to heaven. And what's interesting is he comes back and he says, yeah, I spent some time in heaven. I don't know how long, I don't know if I was dead, I don't know if I was alive, not sure. But what I saw, I can't tell you about. What? Like, come on, man. Like, give us a little bit of insight, a little glimpse, a little taste. I just don't have the words. You don't have the words? Come on, Paul. You're pretty wordy. I mean, it's not like he lacks the gift of gab. But he says, I I can't speak of these things because my human language would not even do justice. Now, I I don't want to criticize people who claim to go to heaven and not. But there's only one guy I know for sure went to heaven, and that was Paul. And what he saw was so awesome, he couldn't write a book about it. Now, if in this moment, Paul dies from stoning, let's assume, and he goes to heaven for a few minutes, I don't know, only to be resurrected back to life. Kind of like Paul gets there. Jesus is like, check it out, dude. (laughs) You got to go back now. And then boom, he's back at his body and he looks 
Like to me, that makes so much more sense now why Paul would, upon getting up, go back into the city where there was a mob that had just stoned him. Like, I don't think it was bravery. I think he's like, listen, please, you gotta finish the job. What I just saw, like it was awesome. One more headshot should do it. Like, send me back. Like, it's, it's cool to me. Imagine Paul being stoned. Like, we know that happened. Paul's being stoned for the gospel, for preaching Jesus. Yeah, I wonder what it was like for him in that moment where he knew what was going on. Like, he knew there was no way to escape the eyes of those who were picking up stones. It was something he could relate to, right? Because he had been on the other end of the equation before. Do you think when the first rock hit him and the second and the third, you think he thought of Stephen, the man he had stoned, thinking, this is fitting. (laughs) This is how I should go out. Imagine these disciples. Like, I'm kind of struck by this. So there's Paul. They're, they're, they're bystanders. There's nothing they can do. They're watching this man, this hero, their friend, being stoned to death, dumped outside of the city in the garbage pile. And they gather around him. I wonder what they're doing. Praying? Crying and weeping? <laughs> Imagine the reaction. When Paul opens his eyes, dusts himself off a little bit, gimps his way back into the city. You want to talk about faith? You want to talk about encouragement? (laughs) You want to talk about inspiration? Paul's actions here, no doubt, left an impression. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but there is a young man that's present. I believe he's part of these disciples. We know he's from Lystra. We know he's, he's a Christian at this point who's probably there. A man two books of your Bible are written after, a man by the name of Timothy. I wonder what it did in Timothy's heart to see Paul get up and walk back into town. Now, if you're processing our study at this point, you gotta be thinking, wait a second. Wait a second, Zach. How could Paul demonstrate this type of persistence. He's stoned to death. He gets up, he goes back into town. How could Paul do such a thing when the setback was obviously the result of an uncontrollable circumstance? I mean, shouldn't this, what took place, this moment, I mean, shouldn't it have lit lit up the, the quadrant of Paul's brain, the emotional quadrant, the part that he's like, forget this mess. I'm trying to do something for Jesus and all I'm getting is stones and hatred. I'm done, I'm out, peace. That would have been only natural, right? I mean, how easy is it for you to quit serving Jesus or you to quit running the race? You hadn't been stoned to death, but Paul had. See, it would have only been natural for Paul in this moment to say, okay, like I could endure a lot, but at this juncture, I'm kind of done. I'm just going to time out. I'm going to take a break. Please understand, 
what a person needs to persist in the face of a trial, a setback, is not necessarily the ability to have control over the setback you encounter, but the knowledge that your setback is under control. See, Paul could have quit. He could have said, I'm done. But he persisted, why? Because he recognized that God had complete control over his circumstances. And why is that important? Friend, understand, recognizing God's control over the circumstances you face, it does something very important. In your brain, if you recognize that God is in control and you accept that God is in control and you realize these things are not happening by an accident, but God is sovereign and and nothing comes my way without first filtering through his hands. When you accept that and believe that and hold to that, what happens is that your brain, it engages in an area that is connected to learning as opposed to the one that relies on feeling. See, if you chalk up your circumstances to things beyond your control and beyond God's, you will get emotional and you will quit. But if you recognize that God is in control, you will learn and you'll grow. James would say, count it all joy when you face trials of many kind, knowing what? Well, continue to read. You learn and you grow. These things don't cause you to bail out or jump out or throw up your hands and quit. That gives you the resolve to learn from them and to grow from them and to mature from them and to become more like Jesus through the very suffering that you face. (laughs) If you rely on learning and not emotions, well, you can run the race with endurance, the race that's set before you. Well, the next day, He departed with Barnabas, Paul, to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, and and pause for a moment. Let's just get to the motion of the text. We're, We're moving along. The day after his stoning, Paul and Barnabas take a 20 mile walk from Lystra to the adjacent town of Derbe. All the same area. This is an area known as Galatia. We have no specific details of their time. We don't know how long or what they did in particular in Derby, other than the fact that Luke tells us they preached the gospel and made many disciples, which I love. Because this gives us an important detail about Paul and his heart. Paul was not just about making converts. He was about making disciples. Paul invested into people. But we're told that after this time in Derby, they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord and whom they believed. Now following this undefined, unspecified season of ministry in Derby, the crew, they head back 20 miles to Lystra, another 40 miles north to Iconium, then 60 miles to Antioch. This is all on foot. And it's incredible to think, isn't it, that Paul would deliberately journey back through towns that had demonstrated such hatred towards him. (laughs) One, where they stone him to death. And why would he do this? 
Well, at this juncture, Paul realizes that the threat, it doesn't outweigh the benefit. He, he recognizes that, that he's needed. And if, hey, if they stone him to death, he either gets to go back to heaven or he'll get resurrected again. We're told that his purpose, and look at it, I, I love it. He goes back to these towns visiting these churches to strengthen the souls of the disciples, to exhort them to continue in the faith, and to explain that it would be through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of God. Like you can figure that, that this teaching, that tribulation is an unescapable part of our journey with Jesus, struck a powerful tone as Paul Paul wasn't teaching something he wasn't living. He practiced what he preached. Paul could say this, why? Because every man knew that he walked the walk that he talked. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 18, Paul would write, do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, this is what he calls what he's going through, a light affliction which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not are eternal. This is what Paul is teaching them as he's working his way back through these towns. And aside from this, we're told they, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, they appointed elders in every church, commending these men to the Lord. Now, the Greek word appointed is cheritoneo, which is a compound word, chair, meaning the hand, and tineo, meaning to stretch. The word literally means to stretch forth the hand, which was a common voting method in the Athenian Senate there in Greece. Now, note, as demonstrated in this passage, the responsibility of appointing elders was not the job of the church but instead the job of the leadership of the church. It should also be pointed out that they, Paul and Barnabas, appointed elders in every church. Elders, plural, more than one. Sharing a power base, sharing a vision, sharing the responsibilities and the load. You see, a local church had local leadership. There wasn't one elder that ruled all of Galatia. Every church possessed its own elders. <laughs> you know, in the early church, and it's, it's the same in the church today, but, but maybe not quite as extreme, but becoming an elder, yeah, it was an honor. I mean, to be given that position, it was significant, but it was also dangerous. You see, becoming an elder, being appointed to leadership, it wasn't a glorious position. As a matter of fact, you instantly, immediately became a lightning rod. How were these unbelieving Jews trying to stop the work happening in these towns? They were going after Paul, right, and Barnabas. But now that there's elders or local leadership and Paul and Barnabas are gone, who do you think they would go after? The men in charge. 
Once these men are appointed by Paul and Barnabas, we're told that they were commended to the Lord. Commended, it's an interesting word because it means to be put alongside of. Please understand, Jesus is the head of the church. Universally, he's the head of the church. Locally, he's the head of the church. Jesus is the head of Calvary 316. Jesus pastors this church, but this passage is clear that the elders serve as the instruments by which Jesus does the leading, which is why it's important for an elder to be a a man of integrity. Paul lays out qualifications to ensure spiritual maturity. See, an elder takes his cues from Jesus. He should. And Jesus alone, he should. Jesus is the head, but the elders are placed alongside of to be Jesus' hands, to be Jesus' feet. One more observation. These churches were not congregationally led, were they? There wasn't a voting method within the church. Every decision didn't go in front of the congregation. There were elders commended to Jesus to make decisions and lead the church in the direction that Jesus wanted it to be led. Now, it's also a bit surprising. You You can reason that we have no mention here of Paul as he's working his way back, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. There's no mention of him having any problems, right? I mean, no mention as he's retracing his steps here of there being an opposition or persecution. It seems as though they're allowing Paul to kind of travel freely, which doesn't seem far-fetched because if you rose from the dead after being stoned to death, and you walk back into town, my guess is people are going to kind of leave you alone. So he's allowed to work his way back. And we're told, verse 24, that after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, three Ps, they went down to Attilia, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas passed back through Pisidia. We've got the map to try to help you wrap your mind around the movements here. So they crossed through this region into another region, that being Pamphylia. We're told that there they go back to a town and preach the word in Perga. If you will recall, when Paul and Barnabas and John Mark first arrived to Galatia, this area, Mark left the group in Perga, and more than likely, Paul contracted malaria, which meant they weren't able to do any ministry there, moving very quickly up into the more mountainous regions of Antioch. Paul, coming now back through town, is wanting to maximize the opportunity to to teach the people there in Perga to plant a church. And from there, they travel west to the port city of Attilia. They board a boat. They sail back to, we can presume, though we're not told, Seleucia, And then they head back up to Antioch, different Antioch, the one in Syria. I hope this map helps. In all, Paul's first missionary journey, and and for the record, we, we note the missionary journeys by the departure and the returning to this church in Antioch. It was their hub. It was their base. It was what we would consider Paul and Barnabas' home church. So when they leave, a new missionary journey starts. When they return, that journey concludes. And so the first missionary journey 
covers a period of about two years. We've covered two years and a couple months here. They traveled 500 miles by sea and another 700 miles by land. And I love this phrase, the work which they had completed. You know, once you begin a journey of faith, a journey that's initiated by the calling of God, I hope you know that there's no greater reward, no greater joy than finishing the task Jesus places in front of you. So often when we quit in the middle of something, you know all we're doing is robbing ourselves of the joy that's set before us. As a youth pastor, I served in that capacity for just shy of a decade. I was able to see a man like Creighton begin as a sixth grader and go all the way through 12th. You know, the average life expectancy in ministry of a youth pastor is 18 months. And the reason being is that things get hard dealing with teenagers. You know, it's not easy. It can be an ungrateful task. And yet I tell youth pastors over and over and over again, if you quit, all you're doing is robbing yourself of a future joy, a future blessing. Because as a youth pastor, there is nothing better than to see numbskulls, knuckleheads, middle schoolers and high schoolers, pimple-faced punks, that even their parents don't think there's a future for their child. God grip and Jesus transform and those kids being fathers and husbands, being men of God. The only way that you can get to the joy is to endure the journey. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, verse 27, Paul and Barnabas reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Luke tells us Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch a long time. Most scholars believe that they stayed in Antioch anywhere between one to two years. We don't know specifically. And why do they stay that long? I think there's two reasons. One, they needed rest. 500 miles by sea, 700 miles by land over the course of two years, being stoned to death, run out of town. I mean, all the things that had gone on, a little breather, a break, some R&R, Not a bad thing for a minister. Secondly, they hadn't left because the Holy Spirit hadn't sent them back out. And why had the Holy Spirit not done such a thing? Well, next Sunday we'll see that there was trouble brewing in Jerusalem and God knew that he needed Paul and Barnabas close to deal with this growing problem. Now, knowing that this Antiochian church had not only sent them out, but we can presume had been co-laboring in prayer behind the scenes, Paul and Barnabas sensed a responsibility to report all that God had done with them and that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. That's good, to give a report. Knowing that there are people who have your back that are behind you to share what God has done. But you know what's amazing to me? That Paul and Barnabas, as they recount their travels, Their ultimate conclusion, look at it again. God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 
So their conclusion, after this two-year-long journey through Galatia, across Cyprus, was that God had opened a door to the Gentiles? An open door? That's their conclusion? Now think about that for a moment. They get to Cyprus. Elimaeus withstood them, the sorcerer. They get to Perga. Mark, their traveling companion, one of the three amigos, bails. Paul contracts malaria. He didn't take his malaria pills. They get to Antioch, and they're run out of town. They get to Iconium. They get run out of town. They get to Lystra. And a mob on one day wants to hail them as gods, which they have to resist. The next day, they get stoned. An open door? Now, I mean, it's true. Like, God did amazing things. Every town they went to, they preached the gospel, there was converts, churches were planted, leaders were appointed. But when you factor in all of the negative that happened in this first missionary journey, I would be a bit hesitant to call it an open door. Seems like there was a lot of closed doors, right? Seems like they had just as many headaches as victories, defeats, as triumphs. An open door? That's their conclusion? You know, this perspective, it forces me to consider two important things. First, it would appear that a greater weight should be placed on the positive results of ministry and not the negative. You know, as a pastor, I'll just let you know that it's very easy to allow a naysayer to rob you of your joy. You can preach a Bible study and one person can come up and complain and it can make the drive home miserable because you put your heart, your soul, your energy, your effort into it. But you know, there's a truth. When you're doing good, when people are being blessed, when people are being fed, we don't often voice that, right? Like when we go to a store and we have a good experience, we have a good experience. But anybody in any type of retail or working with people will know that it's only when you have a problem that you voice something, when you complain. It's so easy, friend, to allow Satan to rob you of your joy. Okay, your kid does one thing stupid. You know why? Your kid's stupid. They're a sinner. And they have your genetics, so it's your fault. Your kid does one boneheaded thing, and it's real easy to allow Satan to whisper into your ear, you're a failure. You're a chump. You don't know what you're doing. When if you take a step back, you look at all of the good. Like there's a mountain of good that's happening. But those one or two negative things can rob us of joy. Not so with Paul and Barnabas. They had this mountain of good. They had a mountain of bad. And they get back and they're like, there was an open door. It was awesome. God is doing great things. When most of us would be like, oh, I'm never going back to that God-forsaken territory. Don't allow the small things to rob you of your joy. <laughs> Martin Luther. Martin Luther recently tweeted, 
I don't know how he tweeted it, but he tweeted it. It's his Twitter account. He died years ago, but whatever. Martin Luther once tweeted recently, they gave our master a crown of thorns, so why do we hope for a crown of roses? Ain't that the truth? You know, the second thing their perspective encourages me with, opposition from the enemy is an inescapable part of God's open door. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Like Paul even reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse nine. He says, for a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. With the open door comes the adversaries. Friend, never fall into the trap of seeing opposition, setbacks, struggle, temptation as evidence of God's displeasure. (laughs) Jesus was opposed. He was later crucified. But was God displeased? No, Jesus was right in the center of God's will. In 1 Peter 5, verse 10, we're told, but may the, great, may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle. This new year, with the examples of these men finishing their race in mind, I think it's a relevant question to ask. How do you plan to persist to remain undeterred when it becomes difficult for you to follow Jesus. When your circumstances make the journey difficult. Seriously, this is a pertinent question because following Jesus demands constant persistence. The path this journey will lead us down was never promised to be easy and it will require resolve. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, so if you have a problem that following Jesus is difficult, you can blame him. Because he said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, but the narrow the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. You see, what we learn from our inevitable failed New Year's resolution, if you haven't failed yet, you will soon, is that if you think your willpower will suffice in the journey down the narrow road, you're tragically mistaken. Like, don't forget, It only takes seven digits to so overwhelm your brain you'll give in to a piece of chocolate cake. You don't have the strength on your own, the willpower on your own. You might be sincere in your desire to persist even in the face of trying setbacks, but as we've mentioned, if if left to your own faculties, as soon as life throws you a curve, when your circumstances don't make sense, when life spins out of your control, you will be naturally inclined to quit and to throw in the towel. Maybe you already have. You see, what was the key for Paul and Barnabas to finish their race even when they were tempted to bail, 
when obstacles that they were facing might have seemed too large to overcome? The answer, well, we're told, look at it. They reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door. The key for Paul and Barnabas to finish their race was not their willpower or even a deeper capacity than most for resolve. Instead, the foundation of their ability to persist, the foundation of your ability to persist in following Jesus down a difficult road, but a road that leads to glory. There are three things. One, we're told, it was their knowledge that God was with them, that they weren't alone, that God was working through them, that it wasn't their efforts or their energies that it was Christ working not just with them, but in them. And thirdly, that God was in complete control of whatever circumstances they might have faced. This year, if you wanna make a resolution that will matter, resolve to place your faith in Jesus. Resolve to follow Jesus. Resolve to keep in your mind and in your heart the understanding and the knowledge that I'm not alone and that I'm not left to my own strength and that whatever I face, Jesus will be faithful to help me through. And if you do that, you will find success as you run a race, a race that was set before you. And so, Father, with that word, we just let it settle into our hearts.